You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. I think it's interesting that uh, worship songs, worship music, uh, falls into, uh, really, when you think about it, one of two categories. Uh, Songs uh, either allow us to sing about the Lord, uh, or they uh, force us to sing to the Lord. I think both of those are important, and uh, that last song, um, we obviously were singing to the Lord. Um, it's a great phrase, a, a biblical phrase that uh, you do well to, to study, uh, to sing unto the Lord. Uh, we're told to do that in Scripture, sing unto the Lord a new song. Uh, and so, uh, just, uh, I, I sometimes think... You know, if someone doesn't feel comfortable singing a particular worship song, sometimes it's because the song forces you to sing to someone whom you may not love like you should. And uh, that's not to be passively aggressive this morning or to load you up with a ton of guilt right here at the beginning of the message. But uh, I just think it's, uh, it's so important uh, that we do both of those things, uh, that we give testimony to the Lord's faithfulness, but that we express our love to Him. So, love to worship with you. Let's take our Bibles, turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7 this morning. Luke chapter 7, and you might also flip over to Luke chapter 19 and hold your finger there. Uh, We'll be in both of those passages here in just a few moments. We, last week, introduced and started a new sermon series called Rhythms, Living and Looking Like Jesus in the Flow of Life. Um, What we're doing is we're tracking some important, uh, significant themes through Scripture, Uh, Scripture uh, works that way. There are threads. There are ribbons, we sometimes say. There is a ribbon, a thread of redemption that runs from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And so you can follow those things. One of the hermeneutic principles that uh, we learn in seminary is called the comparative mention principle. And you can follow certain uh, themes and images throughout Scripture. And so Uh, that's uh, more or less what we are doing in this series of messages. We're looking at some very ordinary activities, uh, the rhythms of life. And uh, again, some of you, maybe you're at a season of life right now that has you feeling like every day you're just getting on a roller coaster, strapping in and holding on for dear life, right? I get that. That speaks more to the the tempo of your life, the pace of your life, uh, and that is largely driven by the season of life that you are in. Others of you, maybe you've recently entered uh, the uh, empty nest stage of life. I envy you just a bit. Um, if you know our story, you know that we were kind of like planning for that, and then God said, ah, that's just what you thought. Um, I'm going to surprise you with another amazing blessing, um, and uh, that, that we can't imagine life without her. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we kind of did a hard turn there, hard shift, you know, we were preparing for one season, and God said, no, you're staying right right here, right in this season of child rearing and, and all of that. And so those seasons do uh, determine, uh, to a large degree, what the rhythms of your life look like, what you can and can't do. Some of you have more uh, discretionary time than others. Uh, some of you, uh, your time is very governed and dictated by Uh, work, for example, and things of that nature. And so what we're really asking you to do is take some very ordinary things. Next week, Jason's going to cover the subject of Sabbath, of rest. Uh, And that's something that most of us would say, I need more of that, okay? 
Uh, it, it, there's, there's a lot to be said about just pausing, right? You just need to hit the pause button a lot of times. And in fact, I think God mandates that for us. But that's next week. This morning, we're going to look at the very ordinary uh, activity of eating and hospitality. Uh, again, we sometimes think that God is waiting patiently for us to do something spectacular or over the top or out of the ordinary, something that would just like set us apart from the rest of the world and all of that, when really he longs to just meet with us and use us in the ordinary flow of life. What we're really trying to do in this series is kind of break down the wall that we often put up that divides our secular life from our sacred life. And I realize, in fact, most of you do not work vocationally in ministry like I do. It's, it's, it's what I've done my entire life. And so for you, maybe uh, you're thinking, well, but there is kind of a secular part to my life. I'm at work, and I'm writing contracts, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and I'm supervising people, and all those things. And it, it's very easy for me to, in all of that, kind of forget about my, my spiritual life. But what we're suggesting and what we're saying here in, in this series of messages is that God intends to use all of that, uh, your work life and all of those things, ultimately for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom, to use the normal rhythm of our lives. So again, this morning, we're going to look at the rhythm of eating and hospitality. I'm not going to talk. Go ahead and just tell you right now, you can rest easy. We're not going to talk about your diet. We're not going to talk about gluttony today or anything like that. So it's like... Whew, um, because that would be a hard sermon on me, okay? <laughs> That's really not the direction this message is going. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about the common grace, really, of eating uh, and, and the importance of that. The primary New Testament term uh, for hospitality, and that word is actually translated, it's translated hospitality in, in some of our English uh, translations, is the word philoxenia. Uh, it's, a, it's a compound word that comes from the word phileo and, and xenia. And so it's a, literally a lover of strangers. It is, uh, it, it is the opposite of xenophobia, a fear of strangers or the fear of, uh, uh, of those that we don't know. Uh, in its adjective form, uh, it's philoxenos. It is one who is given to hospitality. And the emphasis of the term falls on love, the phileo part of that word. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And so uh, it's bestowed upon those many times whom we do not know, the stranger, the xenos. Uh, another term, xenigzo, is actually the word. It means to receive a stranger, uh, to receive as a guest, um, uh, to entertain. Scripture says you can entertain angels unawares is, is, is the idea. That's the word that you see there. Um, another expression frequently used is to receive or to welcome, to receive or to welcome. And so the idea is that of welcoming and opening both our hearts and our homes, in some cases, to others. Usually it involves the sharing of a meal. It often uh, involves providing accommodations for spending the night. Uh, in fact, uh, John Mark Comer, in a message on this subject, points out that the root word for hospitality is the same word from which we get the word hospital. It's the same word from which we get uh, hostel. We don't use that word as much anymore, but a hotel, the idea is hospitality. Uh, in the ancient world, they didn't have those things. You didn't have hospitals. You didn't have Baylor Scott and White and wherever you may go. No. So the, the, the thought was that individual families, people would literally bring you in and bind up your wounds and provide care for you, uh, provide accommodations for you. Uh, we have, you know, especially if you're in 
more highly populated areas, you've got to make a choice between a dozen or so hotels and restaurants and all of those sorts of things. They didn't have all those things in that day. And so uh, this act of hospitality literally fell to individuals, to, to families. And so I guess the best way that we could define hospitality is the ministry, it's a ministry of making others, often strangers, at home, in our home, by welcoming them and sharing our home with them, providing food and lodging as needed. That's a pretty broad uh, definition, I realize. But what do we often say when someone visits our home? We come in many times. If, if you're being a reasonably good host, you'll offer them a glass of water, something to drink. Can I get you something? And then we'll say what? Make yourself at home, right? Now, we don't literally mean that most of the time, do we? Let's be honest. Like, if you, if you saw this same person, like, in your closet, like, going through your clothes and stuff and, like, looking for the money, you would probably go, hey, whoa. Or they go over and change the thermostat? Oh, come on now. I mean, we do Go over to the refrigerator and just get whatever you want. But we say that. I mean, that's the intention. We want you to feel as if you are at home, right? That's, that's, that's hospitality. Now, the image that we see here today, and you're going to see this language, you find it really throughout Scripture, uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke alone, food is mentioned some 50 times. Some 50 times. I mean, it's, it's something that we see regularly uh, throughout Scripture. But I was thinking about um, this in preparation for this morning's message, the different tables that we have owned as a family over the years. Uh, early in our marriage, after I finished uh, school and things, we moved back to Texas, and I was going to uh, come back to serve on staff at a church uh, in the Louisville Flower Mound area. And for a while... We used a simple borrowed folding card table and four folding chairs. That was our table. That was our chairs. Um, and uh, we, we enjoyed our meals there. Uh, we finally moved up in the world, and we were able to afford something a little nicer. We got a little dining room set from Sam's. Uh, you know, and I, I remember that vividly because it came in a box, naturally, and so it had to be put together. And I remember not being prepared to get that home and so put it on top of the car, great plan, right? I'm just going to hold on to it with my hand, you know. Like, what an idiot. I, you know, I, you just don't realize, I mean, how much force there is when the wind catches something like that. Thankfully, I got, I got home with it. For several years, we ate our meals uh, around uh, really kind of a family heirloom, uh, an old table that actually Christie's dad, Jack, uh, ate at during his early years. And it featured a, a built-in Lazy Susan. Well-worn, well-used, a lot of meals eaten around. It's actually a round table, around that table. Uh, it wasn't until just the, the last year or so here that we finally bought another table and chairs of, of our own. But it's really not about the furniture, is it? It's really not. That's, that's not the issue. So as I was thinking about those different tables with countless meals together, shared with family and friends, those tables became kind of like an icon of God's grace and God's goodness. It's like to, to take up a place at one of those tables, as, uh, as, as humble as it may have been. Uh, I, I don't guess we've ever really had a formal dining room with you know, all the niceties and all that kind of stuff. A lot of homes don't even come with that kind of feature anymore. Um, but whatever the case may be, the people who gathered around that is what was most important. The people we loved the most, they, they sat with us there and meals were shared and stories were told and sins were confessed in some cases and we laughed together and we cried together. And together we remembered where we'd been and we dreamed of where we might go. 
All those things happen around the table. And, and we prayed at those tables. And, and there we experienced God's nearness and his kindness and his love. That's what, that's what it's a picture of. So sharing the table is really one of the most uniquely human things that we do. There's, there's no other creature that consumes its food at a table. Unless you have a highly trained canine that maybe, I guess, sits at your table. I don't know. Uh, but but it's, it's a uniquely human experience. And sharing the table with other people reminds us that there's more to food than fuel. We don't eat only for sustenance. We, we gathered our family with one of my daughter's dearest friends last night at Blue Goose. And I enjoyed enchiladas and rice and beans and way too many chips and salsa and queso and all of that kind of stuff. And if it wouldn't have been for the fact that it was last night, I probably wouldn't even remember what I'd eaten there. But what I will remember is the conversation we shared around the table and the laughter. And as I was thinking about this morning's message, I was more mindful of the people around us. And I was thinking that the people behind us were, were pretty loud, actually, and that maybe they'd had too much to drink. And, but but they, they were obviously having a good time. And there were other people, same way. There's, there's laughter and there's conversation happening and all that. It's, it's more than just about food itself right? A very common thing. And so I want us to look at these two texts today, and there's some striking similarities in these two accounts of what we find in both Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter 19. And so if you'll pick it up with me in verse number 33, remember this is a section of Luke's gospel where John the Baptist, a couple of his disciples uh, have come to Jesus and like, hey, look, are you like really the Messiah or do we need to look for someone else? Okay, so it's, 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 it's kind of in that context then uh, that we pick it up in verse number 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Remember, we talked about that a little bit last week. Whenever we complete that statement, why did Christ come? We would say we came to seek and to save the lost. He came to, to, to serve, not to be served. And what it says here, he came eating and drinking. Like us, the Lord Jesus in his earthly body, he grew hungry. He was thirsty. And so, yes, he did eat food for sustenance, but he used it for much more than that. And I think that's what we're going to see here. And, and so uh, he came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And then in verse 36, it says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. Remember, they don't have tables and chairs quite like we do today. You'll often see this image of them reclining, actually lying, uh, probably propped up on one arm, kind of like this, with their heads up toward the table itself, their feet outward. Uh, it would be really kind of odd-looking to, to us in our culture, but uh, that's the way things were done. And it says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... Uh, we have every reason really to believe that she was probably a part of the sex industry of that day. Um, and, and we're going to see some other things that would indicate that. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. That would have been considered scandalous in that culture and really in, in certain parts of the world even still today for a woman to let her hair down. You ever wonder where we get that, that phrase? Oh, you just need to let your hair down. 
We sometimes say that meaning, oh, you just need to loosen up. You need to have a little bit of fun, right? This act would have been considered absolutely scandalous, especially to the religious leaders that were there criticizing what is happening and transpiring here as they are at table. So now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, got to be careful what you think in the presence of Jesus, right? He, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And so Jesus, in typical fashion, goes into a story. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. In other words, hey, instead of you being the host, she's been the host. She's doing the things that a host in our culture would uh, would do. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, if you'll turn with me over to Luke chapter 19, we're going to find some some similarities in this account of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Remember the wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. It says in verse number 1 of Luke chapter 19, He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and was rich. You pause right there and understand that means he was despised. He was hated. He would have been in many ways socially, uh, in, in every way, put in the same category as a prostitute. Okay, This would have been a person who was considered a traitor, a sellout, would have been working for Rome and collecting taxes. They would also add fees even to that, would have the backing of Rome even in doing that. And so uh, these people were absolutely despised. It says, and he was seeking to, to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. They all grumbled. And we see this pattern over and over again in Scripture as we, as we study the Gospels. We see that, 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 that Jesus was consistently running the religious people of his day. He was rubbing them the wrong way because of, of those with whom he ate. That he shared a table with, because in that culture particularly, it was incredibly significant to sit and share table with someone, even much more so than today. 
In our day, it's, it's more common to kind of end up near a stranger. You ever been at one of those communal tables that you find at more and more places nowadays? Maybe you're in an airport or something like that, and because of the crowd and everything, you're forced to literally sit beside someone you don't know, and it's just kind of weird and awkward and everything, unless you're like that super, you know, uh, out, you know, you're just like, man, you love talking to strangers. and all. It's just kind of odd, right? Okay, so in this particular time and day, um, th- this was... And we see this whole idea, this whole pattern of, of sitting down with people that, that, that the religious leaders would go, you shouldn't be sitting with those people, you shouldn't be eating with them. What are you doing? It says, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Imagine that. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Since he also was the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And this is, again, this is something that we see pretty regularly throughout Jesus' earthly life. In fact, John Mark Comer, in his message on this subject, he uh, mentions a New Testament scholar by the name of Robert Karras who points out that Jesus, much of his ministry was often seen going to a meal. He was at a meal or he was leaving a meal. So very, very common. Uh, it was a part of the rhythm of Jesus' earthly life, you might say. This idea of eating and doing it with intentionality and, and so forth. So I want us to, to point out some things that we see in really both of these encounters that I think are significant for us. First of all, I want you to notice that the table, eating, hospitality, is a place of connection. It's a place of connection. Uh, tables are, are one of the most important places of human connection. In preparation for this message, I was thinking about uh, significant conversations that I have had at table with someone, sharing a meal, sharing a cup of coffee or whatever. And in some cases, that conversation literally changed the trajectory of my life. It led to an important life decision, a directional shift or, or change or something like that. And so important things happen at the table, you might say. Now, we wouldn't, shouldn't be surprised to discover that throughout Scripture, God has a way of showing up at tables. In fact, it's worth noting that at the center of the spiritual lives of God's people in both the Old and New Testaments, we find a table. There's the table of the Passover. There's the table of, of the Lord's Supper, of communion. N.T. Wright, he captures this whole sentiment when he wrote, When Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't just give them a theory, he gave them a meal. He gave them a meal. One of the most important rhythms for us to recover is the very ordinary act of eating and extending hospitality. Now I recognize some of you are more given to this. It's your jam. Okay, I get it. Okay, and I also want to stop and say here, this is not to be confused with entertainment. Okay, it's not wrong to entertain people, and some of you, that's your thing. You love that. You love to go on Pinterest and try to make your table look exactly like the picture on Pinterest, or you, you know, you've got the magazines out, Good House, whatever the magazines are these days. Martha, Martha, is she in prison? I don't know. Anyway, um, I mean, you, you go look, at, and, and so you're looking at all these ways that you can make it just right, and the place settings are just right. That, that, that's great, okay, but that's, that's really not what this is all about. Those two things are, are really very distinctly different. 
What we're talking about here is in this fast-paced, tech-saturated, attention-deficit-disordered culture in which we live, Christians need to recover the art of a slow meal around a table with people that we care about. In some cases, with a stranger. Don't know them well. Because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I care about their soul and the condition of their heart. Table fellowship doesn't often make the list of the classic spiritual disciplines. But in the midst of a world that seems to have lost its way with regards to to matters of both food and the soul, Christian discipleship has something important to say about the way that sharing tables nourishes us both physically and spiritually. We need to give attention to the spiritual significance of what we eat, where we eat, with whom we eat. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that this has to happen, has to happen in your home with a meal uh, prepared from scratch and, and all of that sort of thing. That's great. Uh, I, I think that if, if that's something that you're able to do, I think that's something that you should certainly consider. But in our culture today, it may be just saying, hey, can we take y'all to dinner? Okay? Uh, and so in Matthew's account of the, of the Last Supper... He writes, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. We find that in Matthew chapter 26. It's interesting that that same language pattern of blessing and breaking and giving, it also shows up in the accounts of Jesus' miraculous feedings. As well as in the scene in which Jesus is recognized, you remember, by the two disciples with whom he walked on the road to Emmaus. While they were eating, they're like, wait, can you just picture that? That's him. That's Jesus, right? This is is all while they're eating. Eugene Peterson in uh, in Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, he makes the point that this pattern of being blessed and broken and given is at the very heart of the Christian story. It's the shape of the gospel itself. It's the shape of the, of the Christian life. And as I was preparing for this morning's message, I was thinking about this connection piece. And I was thinking about the number of times that I've had an opportunity to, to kind of give a handout to someone. You know what I'm talking about? You come across somebody who, who has a need and maybe they're even asking, you got any extra chain, got any extra money? And I, I, I was convicted it wrecked me to think of the number of times that I may have just reached in and given somebody a five or a ten and, and, and then went on my way thinking I'd really done something. A lot like a Pharisee. When instead, I probably should have said to that person, hey, how about let's go get some lunch? And I actually sat at a table with them and heard their story and connected. See, many times we miss those opportunities because we're busy. I did my thing, and, 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 and sometimes, if we're completely honest, we walk away from an encounter like that going, well, I just sure hope he doesn't use it on booze or drugs. Surely I'm not the only one who's had those thoughts, right? So it's a place of connection, a place of connection. I want you to also notice it's a place of blessing. The, the experts who write about these things tell us that we each have one or two Um, primary means by which we communicate and receive love, our our love languages, right? Well, my nana, my dad's mom, uh, found so much joy and delight in preparing a meal for those she loved. 
Uh, my Nana was never happier than when she knew that her family was well-fed. Uh, she was never happier than when Mikey agreed to eat a second chicken fried steak and a second helping of mashed potatoes and a second helping of fried okra. Amen, glory, hallelujah. I usually don't mention those kind of things in a sermon because some of you check out at this point and you start looking at your watch going, I'm about to go get a chicken fried steak after this thing is over, right? That, that's what made her happy. I'm convinced that food is one of God's love languages. It's a common grace. Think about it. It's not as if you can sit across from someone who's not a Christ follower and go, well, you know, that steak would sure taste a lot better to you if you followed Jesus. It's a common grace. Followers of Christ enjoy good food. Agnostics and atheists enjoy good food. It's a common grace. That's one of the things. It's kind of an equalizer in the sense that it brings people from different backgrounds, different philosophies, different ways of looking at life together. It's a place of blessing. It can also be a, a place that divides us if we think about it, though. You think about when, when segregation was more common in the South, particularly, what it would be like to, to walk up and see a sign that said, No blacks allowed. And even the, the socioeconomic situation in which we find ourselves in an area like this, there are just some restaurants in the Dallas area that I can't go eat at. I can't afford them. And one of those nowadays is like Taco Bell, right? I mean, like it, 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 even fast food itself. I mean, you're going to drop 15 bucks on a meal probably. I mean, it's just, but you think about the number of people who quite literally, and I'm not all joking aside, they can't afford even a fast food meal. And so in some ways it divides us. And so if we're willing in love and kindness and with grace to say, hey, let's get some lunch. It brings us together and it becomes a place of blessing. I'm convinced that it's one of God's love languages. The average human has about 10,000 taste buds. And the only explanation I can think of of why that would be is that God loves us. I, how many of you are foodies? All right, foodies? Okay, I, I enjoy, I love, I'm addicted to food. I just, I am. Uh, I, I love good food. I think this is just one of the things that God, in His good grace, allows us to experience and to delight in. He could have made us the sort of creatures for whom food is merely fuel. Uh, one of the things that I hated most about the, the short time that I had COVID was I lost my taste and smell. Every, things that I enjoyed eating now tasted like cardboard or I, I, it didn't taste at all. I hated it. Our 10,000 taste buds are a display of common grace, an expression of His love. And the table is a place to remember the blessing of God. There's an ancient Hebrew prayer that says this, Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, for you give us food to sustain our lives and make our hearts glad. You know how glad I have been at Hutchins before? <laughs> I've been real glad. Real glad. So we need to recover the importance of gathering with people around our tables for the purpose of enjoying a meal as both a gift and a means of grace. It doesn't have to be a lavish spread. It can be quite simple. There are those meals where we gather with guests and we get a glimpse of the banquet of the kingdom to come. Those meals where we get a little foretaste of the shalom of God. These meals are what the, the Celts called the thin places, oddly enough. I don't typically think of eating and being a thin place, but they called it that because they said the veil that separates heaven and earth seems exceedingly thin. 
not just a representation of the kingdom of God. John Mark Comer in his message on this subject points out it is the kingdom of God. It is. Now I want us to see thirdly this morning, it's a place of brokenness and restoration. Brokenness and restoration. One of my favorite meal scenes in all of Scripture occurs on the banks of the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection of Jesus. It's recorded for us in John's Gospel, chapter 21. And if you're familiar with that section of Scripture, you know that after a a futile night of fishing, the disciples encounter Jesus, who calls out to them from the shore, acting impulsively. As he was prone to do, uh, Peter dives into the water fully clothed in an effort to get to Jesus. And as he emerges from the water dripping wet, he moves toward Jesus who has made a fire on the beach. Okay, that doesn't have to be a fancy spread, right? Doesn't have to be a fancy spread. And at that moment, he smells a hauntingly familiar smell. You say, what do you mean? Like fish frying, fish... Now, the word that John, the storyteller here, uses to describe the fire that Jesus made is a word that occurs in only one other place in Scripture, and it's earlier in his own gospel, John chapter 18. There, the word used is of the fire where Peter and the others warmed themselves on the night of Jesus' arrest and trial. The charcoal fire of John chapter 18 was the place of Peter's denial. For Peter, that shame had to have had a smell, that of burning charcoal. But the charcoal fire of John chapter 21, I love this, is the place of Peter's restoration, the place where he's restored. The simple invitation of Jesus to his friends is come and eat, come and have some breakfast, guys. Isn't that great? It's good stuff. The table is the place where broken sinners find connection and belonging. And despite our best intentions, let's be completely honest, we all, like Peter, are just stumbling after Jesus. We desperately need people who will journey with us in our stumbling. We need to recover table fellowship as a rhythm of grace in order to strengthen the bonds of spiritual friendship among believers who are walking together on the road of discipleship. Recovered is a place where we can be vulnerable, just be real with one another. And say, man, I need you. I need you in my life. I need you to speak into my life. Can you pray with me about this? How can I pray with you? That's the table. Fourthly, I want us to see it's a place of giving. As Christians, we are people who are blessed, broken, given. It's the pattern. This latter aspect of our identity reminds us that as God's people, we are given to the world in a sense, called to represent Jesus. God's mission is to rescue and to renew His good but broken creation. And we are... We are called into that mission and called to participate in it by announcing and embodying the love of God in Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that our dinner tables, the table, has the potential to be the most missional place in all of our lives. 
That's why we said a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the Great Commission, how firmly we believe in, in relational evangelism. Now, there are times that God may prompt you and enable you to, to present the gospel in maybe a little more confrontational way or to present it to a stranger sitting on an airplane or, or whatever the case may be. But most often, most often the gospel is presented with clarity and with intentionality in relationship, in relationship. I can't think of a better place, a more missional place than the table. So perhaps before we invite people to Jesus or invite them to church, maybe we should invite them to dinner. Table fellowship is a rhythm of grace that is vital for shaping and sustaining our lives with God for the world. And we need to make a point to share the table with people who are in our lives but maybe are far away from God. That's what Jesus did, right? He didn't just eat with people who were following hard after him. No, remember? You're eating with them? Tax collectors, sinners? The people viewed as the, the, the lowest? The least worthy? It's one of the most distinctive aspects of Jesus' ministry. He came eating and drinking. And here in our text today, in Luke chapter 7, and by his own admission, Jesus had a reputation among the religious establishment of being a glutton and a drunkard. One of the most distinctive things about him was that he ate and drank with notorious sinners. When the Pharisees called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard, they didn't make, that, uh, make up that, that, that depiction. They were actually referring to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 20, and implying that Jesus' table fellowship with people who were far from God made him worthy of death. But for the Lord, the table, that table fellowship was a demonstration of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. As Gordon Smith suggests in his book, A Holy Meal, The Lord's Supper and the Life of the Church, eating was for Jesus a key means by which he proclaimed the coming of God's reign and acted or enacted its arrival. So practicing this rhythm of grace would mean reconnecting with this all-important aspect of Jesus' life and ministry and emulating him by opening our hearts and our homes and our tables to people who are far away from God. People with whom you may have very little in common. You wouldn't look at them and go, whip, that's my people. No. In light of all that, I want you to think finally this morning about the coming feast. The Bible has a lot to say. A lot to say. That wasn't fun. And we're back. Has a lot to say about food. And even feasting, right? When the Old Testament prophets wanted to speak of the day when God's reign would finally come into its fullness, they depicted a great feast. The prophet Isaiah spoke of a coming day when Yahweh will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines in Isaiah 25, 6. And in that day when all that is wrong is made right and all that is broken is made whole, there's going to be one extravagant meal. 
in her book, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition, Christine Pohl has observed, a shared meal is the activity most closely tied to the reality of God's kingdom. Just as it is the most basic expression of hospitality. Preparation for this morning's message, I was thinking about the significant things that have happened around meals over the course of my life. In the very early days of mine and Christie's relationship, uh, one of the things that I look forward to every week, because I was living on campus and eating food on campus, which was not Hutchins, okay? Um, it's maybe not quite the opposite of Hutchins. Um, one of the things I look forward to is that I typically got invited to eat at their table every Sunday. And it's around that table that our relationship grew, got closer. Relationship grew deeper. And it wasn't because there was a big fancy spread put out there every Sunday afternoon. No. It's because of what that meant. It was time together. Time for me to talk to her and for her to hopefully talk to me. Um, That's what made it significant. So how are you using... This common thing of eating, hospitality, for God's glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. If we could for just a moment bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord God, I want to thank you today that you certainly have proven time and again that you are a God of the miraculous. We can think of so many ways in which you demonstrated that. The deliverance of your people from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea. So many ways in which we see you working in a miraculous sort of way. But Lord, we also see you working in the very ordinary things of life. We see what transpires in those, those moments, those, those rhythms of life is really itself miraculous. Lord, I pray that you would help us to retrieve, to revisit, to revitalize this very ordinary thing of eating and hospitality for the sake of the kingdom and for your glory. Lord, help us to use it as a place where we connect with others, a place of blessing, a place where those who are broken can be restored, a place of giving. We thank you. Lord, we thank you for the imagery that we see in your word of a coming feast when all things are restored, all things are renewed. Lord, if there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, the power of your word, they be drawn to you today. 
Lord, we thank you that you desire to have fellowship with us. Your word even invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. So we give you all praise and honor and glory now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.